Hello, Danielle. Hi, Marianne. And hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to This Study Shows. We are back for another special episode. And let me explain what this one is all about. Earlier this year, we released a special episode called Communicating COVID-19 because we knew it was important for this study shows to respond to the story of the moment and talk about the impact of science communication at this unprecedented time. Now, our podcast is all about how research matters and how it has to be shared. Accurate, thoughtful science communication has never been more vital. But The coronavirus pandemic is not, I think you'll probably agree, the only story that is defining this year. Because out on the streets, in conversations, across social media, we've seen a global response to racial violence and discrimination. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is the moment of reckoning, isn't it, for so many industries. And and so we wanted to take this opportunity to really look at systems of oppression and bias in the world of science communication and hear from the people working hard to create serious change. We believe that communication is one of the most powerful tools a researcher can have. But not everyone has equal opportunity to tell their story of science or to access these stories. So that's why we decided to record a special episode all about the power of inclusive science communication. And it's a massive subject, Marianne. Yeah, inclusive science communication in 60 minutes. Ready, steady, <laughs> go. Here we well, go. No, to be fair, this is the start of a, a much longer conversation and hopefully, you know, a lifetime of work for all of us. Um, but we have an incredible panel of four people here to help us get to grips with it. So joining us to discuss today inclusive science communication, we have Dr. Sunshine Menezes. She's the Clinical Associate Professor of Environmental Communication at the University of Rhode Island and the Executive Director of the Metcalf Institute. We're also joined by Subisi Sue Bayella, a columnist and science communicator, and he's based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Professor Chris Jackson's here. He's a geologist at the Imperial College London, and he's the founder of the non-profit preprint server Earth Archive. He's also one of this year's Christmas lecturers for the Royal Institution of Great Britain, following in the most esteemed footsteps of our very own Professor Danielle George, who hosted those lectures um, in 2014. Did you not, I did indeed, yes. I remembered it was just yesterday, actually. Um, and finally, we have Lewis Hu. He's a specialist in interdisciplinary education and cultural participation, and he's the founder of the social enterprise Science Cayley, which is based in Scotland. Scotland, fusing traditional arts, community and science. Wow, what a panel. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'd like to, to kick off things by asking what attracted each of you to the field of science communication. And Lewis, I'd like to start with you, please, because you wanted to make sure you weren't just sort of preaching to, to the same old people, but you want to try and reach new audiences, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I'm delighted to be here and um, when I saw science communication, it was very much the Edinburgh Science Festival, and I had no idea what I had signed up for, to be honest. But I really, really enjoyed the experience. And there's obviously very young people there, very hands-on. But after a few years of doing that, alongside doing my degree, I really noticed this kind of sense of that it was, it was the same people who were coming along to these types of workshops. And um, not that that wasn't great, but it was the white middle-class families that very much they already converted to science, as you say. And so I think over time, I was really interested in 
uh, another facet of my life where, where I, was, I was playing fiddle and uh, playing traditional music and dance and this real spirit where it's not about being an expert, it's not about being the converted, it's not being about the best dancer uh, or the best singer or musician. It's about that participation and really fascinated about how we could bring that spirit into science in this kind of more diverse uh, way. Uh, and over time, that's been a journey to thinking about diversity, inclusion, and now into more specifically uh, decolonizing and anti-racism and and sunshine i mean you're you're very keen on on making sure that that we we reach the the non-experts as well aren't you and and sort of diversifying the conversation yes i am and you know i actually i came into science communication kind of by mistake originally i was getting a phd in oceanography and was spending a lot of time by myself in dark rooms um, doing my analyses. And I realized that that was not the highest, best use of me as a human. So I got this fellowship where I was working um, with a, a congressman in the U.S. Capitol and had this kind of trial-by-fire experience of trying to be a science communicator without any training and realized how bad I was at it. And um, one thing led to another, and I ultimately— became um, executive director of Metcalf Institute, where science communication is everything that we think about. Um, and then my thinking about inclusive science communication really evolved um, from some of my own personal experiences uh, in the healthcare system and seeing how absolutely disparately people would experience that system based on the various privileges that they had. And so my personal experience really um, inspired me to push for inclusive and equitable communication a lot more. Uh, Sibusi Su, is that what happened to you in terms of a sort of a, a personal inspiration? Uh, well, for me, it started out um, out of greed. Um, when, I got to, <laughs> when I got to university, I wanted to... Uh, I had to choose a, 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 some sort of science degree, but I didn't want, didn't know what to choose. Uh, from high school, I enjoyed all the sciences that I did, uh, but I settled on physics and chemistry. Um, and going ahead, I realized that if I choose uh, one undergraduate degree, then I'll have to stick with that science for the rest of my life. And I did not want to do that. I wanted to talk about all the sciences. I wanted to do all the science. And I saw that uh, what I enjoyed doing the most is talking about science to other people uh, on a personal level. It just felt like I was the most myself when I was doing that. And uh, in terms of uh, inclusivity, uh, what I've learned over the years is I want everyone to have, have the skills of science uh, to to sort of uh, remove this veneer of science that it's uh, it's difficult and it's uh, and the only people who should care about it are the people who are doing it um and uh, one of the great ways i've found to include more people has been um trying to change the language in which i communicate just to get more people into it not because they don't understand it when uh, it's spoken about in english uh but because when it's spoken about in your own indigenous language you are more likely to uh feel like uh you own it uh you feel this sort of ownership and pride in understanding something in in your own language so that's that's been my journey so far 
Mm, what a journey. Yeah. It's amazing. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about um your adventures in in languages other than English or Afrikaans um shortly. Professor Chris Jackson, what I mean, when we're talking about inclusive science communication, I mean, should we define our terms? I mean, what is it that we're actually talking about? What what makes science communication diverse or inclusive? I think it's quite simple. I think it's just not talking to other scientists. And that just opens up the rest of the world who aren't scientists, of course. And that can go all the way from, you know, kids who are, you know, just learning to crawl and kind of wondering why something's hot and something's cold, all the way through to you know, palliative care and people learning about, you know, things at the end of their life. I mean, there's, there's, a, whole, there's a whole range of people there who aren't taking part in science and uh, excluded or don't feel like they can be included. And um, so that's how I would term inclusive science is it's, it's, it's taking it out to beyond people. And I, and I think as well, it goes across fields. So, you know, if a geoscientist talks to a physicist, is that really being inclusive? Maybe because it's still a bit of a club. <laughs> it's still a little bit of a gang, isn't it? Of you know, historical training at degree level or whatever it is. So I, I like to think of it as getting like beyond that and into the hands of you know, I don't like the term lay people, but you know, it's into people who maybe didn't think they had a share in science. Hmm. And what about you, um, Sunshine? I mean, you established the Inclusive Psycom Symposium. What what are your what's the focus? What's the mission? Uh we just want to completely rebrand science communication. That's all. Um, so, you know, the, the <laughs> we have come to, um, fairly recently, come to a point where we're calling this a movement um, because that is the term that feels most accurate for what is happening right now. We want to um, help science communicators and scientists and various publics um, see science in in the ways that Chris just described, um, see science as something that is relevant to their lives. But we specifically want to make science communication based in, grounded in inclusion and equity and intersectionality. You know, we, we want to get past this idea that inclusion and equity are things you add on at a later date and make sure that marginalized voices are centered in science communication in ways that they haven't been for maybe ever, um, depending on, you know, where you are in the particular circumstances. So, yeah, I mean, we want to just completely change this. And the symposium itself is designed to create a space where people who are doing this work and or really want to learn about it can come together, share what we know, across disciplines, across sectors, across the various methods that we use so that we're not all remaking the wheel all the time. So yeah, it's, it's, it's about building community and, and sharing what we know and learning. There was another term that you just used, which I think might be helpful for some of our listeners to just define that as well, which is intersectionality. What what It comes up again and again in these conversations about decolonizing science. It comes up in conversations about making science in, and SCICOM inclusive. What do we mean by intersectionality and intersectional identity? Right. Great question. So this term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is an American legal scholar. And the idea is that um, people's identities can combine to compound the, um, the kinds of experiences that they have in their lives. So a Black 
woman, for example, is experiencing racism or may experience racism and sexism at various points in her life. So not just one, which is bad enough, but multiple challenges that need to be dealt with. And um, and there are various ways that this happens. But the, the point is that when you have these intersectional identities, these various ways that your, um, ex- your very existence kind of presents in the world, that it can complicate and, um, and make more challenging the ways that you engage with others and, more importantly, that others <laughs> engage with you. So it is a really foundational concept that has been built on by many other people since then, but I wanted to make sure that Kimberly Crenshaw is noted as the person that really articulated this so brilliantly for the first time. So different aspects of your identity bring different bias, prejudice, sense of exclusion, sense of entitlement perhaps, and and privilege into the picture. We can't just kind of pick one label and go, ah, this is the issue. Exactly right. This is who I am, or this is who they are. That's right. We tend to oversimplify these things. And intersectionality is a way of interrogating those oversimplifications. So a term you hear quite a lot is sort of informal science learning as well. How How is it different or, or is it different? Inclusive science communication, informal science learning. I think, I mean, people use different definitions. Informal very often is used to kind of as a catch-all for anything that's out with schools, for example. Um, but I think there's a more philosophical question in, in that, you know, is, as Sunshine says, is inclusive science communication a different thing or is it? embedded should all informal science communication be um inclusive and i think the answer has to be yes and you know to to take that point around intersectionality you know there's a great quote around there's no such thing as a single issue because we don't live in single issue lives and i think that's really really important in, in terms of that context is that you know there's this very often when we get critics of people who are around decolonizing is that, you know, well, education should be neutral. You know, the UK government has just passed a whole uh, set of of legislation about, you know, not politicizing issues. But, you know, by being neutral, that is a political position. There is no such thing as neutrality within education. And so, you know, it is a privilege to to argue that you can uh, be neutral. And I think that's really important that when we consider that within informal science learning and science communication is that if we don't you know, we accept that we live in a, a racist, misogynistic society and we benefit or privilege from that in different ways, from different art in, art in different intersections. If we don't address those stories that we're telling in the context, it is not about erasing history. It is about adding on. It's about providing that context that has been missed. And if we don't do that, then I think there's a reflection for us as a sector as to, you know, can we uh, talk about inclusion in, in that way? And I think we have to, th- I, we have to see it personally as fundamental. Mm. Sunshine, how do you see the relationship between informal science learning and inclusive SciComm? Um, well, I'll add an interesting point to what Lewis just said, which I totally agree with. And that, so I am doing a, a landscape study of inclusive science communication right now, just wrapping it up with my collaborator, uh, Katie Canfield. And um, the idea of this study was to get a sense of what early leaders in this movement are, are doing, kind of what their motivations are, um, their challenges, um, you know, pressure points to really stimulate or inhibit this movement. And one of the most important findings is that, um, as I alluded to before, there are these tremendous silos between different approaches toward science communication. 
So for this study, we had, we defined science communication in its broadest sense. So any effort to um, engage people in any kind of conversation about any STEM topic, science, technology, engineering, or math topic, counts as science communication in, in this study. But what we found is that the people who are working in informal science learning, which, as Lewis noted, um, tend to be people who are maybe doing um, museum-based work or after-school programs or you know something like that, STEM clubs, stuff like that, see themselves as very separate from the people who are doing science communication, say, via uh, social media or via um, science festivals or whatever. So there are all of these significant silos that really restrict the degree to which we can all avoid duplicating our effort. And I think that's a really important point, especially as this inclusive science communication um, sphere is gaining momentum. Um, We need everybody to be part of this conversation so that we can advance it as quickly as possible. It's something that's come up in conversation um, between uh, you and me, Danielle, as well, about your work. Um, you know, you're a professor of engineering, and, and so many times I've heard you say science communication and informal sharing of my science is not separate to, it's not an adjunct to my work. That is part and parcel of the, you know, it runs through it like a, a kind of a cord woven through that is part of your core work yeah absolutely I mean I don't see it as an addition to my job it's very much a part of my job as a scientist and engineer to communicate my research communicate my science in an accessible and inclusive way with with everybody anyone who wants to listen to me I'll I'll be um talk to him but but there are there are barriers to doing that and and I I I see those and and feel those barriers um, in, in my work. Um, and so, Sue, you, you must see barriers quite a lot in, in your science communication. What are the key barriers for you in your work? Um, for, for me, it's quite related looking at the barriers and the idea of uh, informality and also inclusivity as well. The um, what creates a barrier in South Africa is the fact that formal education uh, when it comes to science and other aspects um, and subjects is already failing. I count myself lucky having uh, the understanding of science um, that I do have most of which I didn't get from school. And I was very lucky to have a lot of people around me, including my mother, who encouraged me to read a lot as much as I could just to get perspectives that I would not get um, anywhere else. And for that, I am uh, forever grateful. Love you, mom. So, uh, (laughs) uh, and so the the formal education system has failed in south africa for historical reasons that i elaborate on in um in my open notebook article which um yes a lot has changed in the past 25 years in south africa since uh, we've had a uh, democratic government uh, part of which has been the education system but uh, the failure that it caused, uh, the uh, the power of the apartheid system and the education system that it created is that the teachers who were trained 
who learned uh, science in that system are the ones who are required to teach science to kids today. And uh, from, I mean, a lot of violence was dealt out by this system, uh, part of it being uh, educational. And um, so we don't have much of a choice in terms of instilling um great science communication in in South Africans, especially black South Africans. We don't have a choice except great informal science um, communication, right? So um, the barrier has been that um, there's a lot of science, great science journalism and science communication happening in South Africa. But the issue is it's problematic when you try to communicate that science to an audience that either doesn't understand part of it or is um, averse even to the idea of science, finds it uh, untrustworthy. So for me, uh, at the beginning, start what, trying to start out as a science journalist, I was quite disappointed uh, with, uh, with that sort of results that I'm trying to communicate science to very smart people who distrust it uh, <laughs> or who don't trust themselves to understand it because part of that system, uh, that system that I talked about before is that when it comes to science and technology, uh, a lot of uh, uh kids are told that, uh, oh, don't worry about that if it's difficult for you, if science or maths is difficult for you. It's not for you. It's 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 for the white people. But the colloquial thing that's said is, isn't that's it's things of the whites. That's what science and technology is. So having that mindset and trying to talk to someone about science um, and they find it untrustworthy for that reason. I mean, there's been a lot of news happening in South Africa, especially uh, with um, with vaccine trials happening at the moment. A lot of distrust from young people, very young, capable people, very smart people on social media having incredible doubts uh, and all sorts of conspiracy theories that they have. So the barrier... Um, is has has been that distrust in science that um that feeling that we don't own science that um that that barrier that requires us in South Africa to conduct science communication informally outside the education system uh for that reason so yeah uh, just to touch on what uh sunshine uh mentioned so there's sort of an <laughs> intersectionality between the informality uh um and it being a barrier um i mean in using informality to uh tackle uh, the barrier of the poor education system system that we've we've had mm. yeah chris do you want to come in yeah, I was going to say, I think one barrier to, to all of this is is the fact it's not valued by some of the reward systems we currently have in academia, at least, which is the field I'm most familiar with. I mean, it's you raise some money, you write a flashy paper, that's kind of valued more than people who are able to go out and engage the, the public who are the very taxpayers whose money we would then leverage to do our research. And that, for me, is one of the most confusing things that clever people do are very dumb things sometimes in that they they value they place value in the wrong places so you know the idea of doing science communication in your spare time is as opposed to what you said Dan as it being an integral part of your very existence what you're talking about and a lot of people are talking about is a self-driven passion for wanting to tell people about things which are awesome right 
This is, that's why we do it, because we bore our friends in the yeah. pub and we go and bore yeah, people exactly. and we talk to anybody at the bus stop who <laughs> listens to us about whatever we care about. But like, <laughs> and we do that anyway. And, 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 and you know, the, 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 the failure is the, the inability of academic systems to codify that into the reward system. And and make it and, and actually see that as part of the as part of as important as doing the work itself. I think is that is that linked to the the notion of science being a particular method of knowledge that is privileged and exclusive. That that is part of its prestige and power. That it's not accessible to everybody. And if if people like yourselves are trying to deconstruct that. People start to feel, people within the ivory tower go, oh, hang on a minute, you're asking me to give up things that I value and find incredibly important. These are the things that shore up who I am. This is my status. But those people are the same people then who are complaining that there's not enough funding for X, Y or Z that they care about. And if they don't go out and tell and portray to the public and, and make their sites valid and relevant and, 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 and translate the bits of it which aren't super hard. Well, they take the super hard bit and if they can't translate that into something which can inform policy or could make somebody like um, Sibusisu said about, you know, believe in the science of vaccine trials, then that's the failure of the scientist, I would argue. And that's why we should prioritise people who can engage the public and, and policymakers as sciences. I, I, I think that the same people who moan about one thing are the same who probably think they should be locked up in their labs doing this amazing science and be paid for it. And I don't think that's right. Sorry, I think that's a bit of a moan, but I, I, I really strongly believe that. Sorry. It, it, it taps in, doesn't it, Lewis, to the idea that when we're talking about making science inclusive or inclusive sci-com, often the conversation ends up being about access, how to reach an audience and, you know, they kind of build it and they will come and they're going, but it's free. It's, it's an open access piece of, uh, you know, um, information. So... They just choose not to come. They mustn't be interested in science, those people, the they. How, how do we unpack that? How do we actually progress to something that is more equitable? I think that really hits the nail on the head in terms of the big, big inclusive problem. And that's, it, it took me a long time. We've been involved in this action research project around this idea of cultural democracy. And it really looks at this question of whose expertise is valued. And I think what we just discussed is, of course, academic research is a, a certain type of knowing which, you know, we value and I value science. But I think there is something around also it is hierarchical, it's intrinsically institutional. And, um, you know, and I think a lot of our work we're kind of, we work a lot with researchers, of course, and we're research-based, but our tagline, and we always think of it, is we make researchers accessible to communities and not the other way around. Our job as being out with the institutions, as an intermediary organization, is to work with communities. So, And we know enough of academia that we can work and support the communities in developing the projects that they want to do and explore the science and questions about the world that they want to explore on their terms. And we bring in the researchers as needed. And I think there needs to be more work around this sense of you know, we talk a lot about two-way public engagement, two-way science communication, is how often do researchers, sometimes it is a mind shift change where you say that people are not empty vessels. They have expertise of themselves, if that's lived experience of mental health issues, or just the general lived experience, which might be causing some of these barriers in terms of the distrust of science, because historically, science has not been equitable for them. 
And they have that experience that we need to also value as well. And I think there is a conversation to be had within academia about how we truly value that as, as, as a, as a two-way process and under, appreciate the research and expertise that scientists have, of course, but at the same time, exp- you know, really appreciate that communities themselves have lived experience, which is valuable. And even if it's not academic, it's not published, but it's important. And I think, you know, we're sort of getting to a point now where we're accepting different ways of knowing and action research models um, that are not necessarily the standard academic way. And I think we need to embed that a bit more within our science uh, communication practice. Just, just, what, just to jump in there, I think just to qualify my points as well, I think academics, and I've been guilty of this, think research only occurs in, in universities. <laughs> and they forget that well, it must be like 1% of science is conducted in universities, right? And then 99% is conducted by research facilities, governmental organisations and what. Ever. So you're right. I mean, the, the, you know, even shifting that narrative is really important to the fact that, you know, who's standing up on the stage at the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures or who's standing up on the, you know, with the government in the advisory panel, you know, where they come from also sends a signal, I think, about, um, you know, the trustworthiness and, the, and, and, the, and, the, and society's relationship to the science that's been almost forced upon them in, in some cases recently. Has anyone got a good example of of actually how we we do shift that perception of where valuable knowledge can be found, where we can integrate that into the more traditional methods of valuing science knowledge. Yeah, I think a lot of it uh, in terms of projects, it's about approach, it's about relationships. Um, and that's hard because academia doesn't give you that time to spend time to develop relationships, communities that might not lead to somewhere that is... Um, you know, where you're valued because of your research, you know. Um, some of our work with the New Scots, so kind of uh, people with diverse migration backgrounds, of very often from Syria, for example, in Scotland, um, has really kind of almost like skirted that line between just volunteerism, civic activism, and eventually public engagement. But as an example, you know, we were volunteering with this and set up, helped set up the steering group within Edinburgh for um, the, the New Scots. And it, it, it was it took about two or three years before science was ever really, you know, we identified a really clear need where science was the answer. And in every other situation, it was more about cultural exchange. It was about, you know, language learning. It was about music um, and dance and, and, and just building relationships uh, with this community. And then over time, it was like, oh, actually, some of our um, Syrian men have engineering backgrounds and actually, you know, they're really struggling with English at the moment and, and really working hard to develop their English and actually would really value the opportunity to meet engineers to l- understand what's going on in Scotland, compare what's happened in their experiences, understand a bit more of the technical language as well. And so it was an interesting kind of project where it took about two or three years of this kind of just knowing each other uh, and, and trust building before we got to a stage where you know, it, it fitted into a classic public engagement agenda, if you like, because we can then involve the researchers in, in universities and in industries. Um, and for us, you know, it, it didn't ever need to get to that position, but it was good that we could help to get it to that point. And I think maybe there's a question is, can we, how as a sector do we leave ourselves open for these types of uh, matchmaking that's led by the community and can take a long time? And very often funding just doesn't allow that to happen. Yeah, agreed. Sunshine, you want to come in there? Yeah, please. Um, so uh, here, here on the funding problem, um, that is definitely one of the um, 
the barriers. Um, you know, funding just doesn't accommodate, our funding timelines don't accommodate the, the relationship building that is a hallmark of inclusive science communication. But I also, I wanted to offer another example. So I am thinking of the work of Monica Ramirez-Andriota, who is a professor of environmental toxicology at the University of Arizona. And so she's interested in environmental monitoring around Superfund sites, you know, these legacy polluted areas um, in the U.S. that have been identified as places that needed to be cleaned up so that people could actually live there and be healthy. Um, so uh, nearby, she created a collaboration with a community that lives near a Superfund site in Arizona, and they wanted to be sure that they could actually grow vegetables, you know, that they could have gardens safely. So the the research um, was this co-created thing from the very beginning where a community identified their needs and their research questions. And in collaboration, um, Monica's team and the community said, okay, well, let's craft a research project that is both satisfying the the um, reward structures in academia per Christopher's note um, and is serving the community and um, and and not doing something for the community but with the community and they've been just massively successful with this effort I'm just I'm so impressed by the work that they've done. Um, and, and in every stage of the process, by the way, not only in the beginning, but throughout conducting the research and um, and doing the analyses and, um, and thinking about how to disseminate the results. So there are examples of this, you know, community-based or community-engaged participatory research happening out there, um, but not as many of them as, as we wish there would be. CBCC, tell us a little more about uh, your work in South Africa. I mean, on Twitter, you are self-labeled as the decolonized science guy. And I think we're, we're circling around this idea, aren't we, where we're talking about who science is for and the, the potential of psychomers or, or scientists' tunnel vision means that we define who science is for, who it benefits, who we share it with, uh, who it belongs to and who's producing it as well, I guess. Uh, okay, so I'm going to sound like a villain because I talked about how science communication for me has been about uh, a greed thing that I couldn't decide which science I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> another aspect is um, being sneaky. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So uh, my philosophy of science communication is that it would be best if I can do it in such a way that uh, the audience that I'm communicating it with uh, doesn't know that they are being uh, communicated science at, <laughs> right? Um, sometimes I find myself sitting with friends talking uh, science stuff, and before you know it, uh, at the end of 10 minutes, they've learned something. <laughs> and then you let them know that it's science, right? But if you start off uh, talking science that, okay, now I'm talking about science, uh, a lot of people switch off. Uh, they don't want to be back in class. They don't want to hear about things about chemistry or physics or or whatever. So that's been uh, another approach that I tried with uh, 
decolonization, uh, the first approach being uh, starting with um, talking about science in Isuzulu. Um, I thought it would be easy if I can just switch uh, uh, to Isuzulu when talking to uh, my friends or family or anyone else uh, about science. But the issue is, if you're talking about any conversation, it could be sports or anything else, and you're speaking in your own indigenous language, it's quite easy. But when it comes to science and technology, then there's that switch, that cold switch that happens and it's inevitable. And I don't want that to happen. I just want science to be talked about uh, as you would talk about anything is, else. Is that because because Isizulu doesn't have the, the words to describe um, kind of modern research term? Mm. What, what's the challenge of, of talking about science in Isizulu or I guess other indigenous languages so the the issue is that yes it doesn't have the um the vocabulary to talk about modern scientific terms simple things that maybe 50 years ago used to be complex to talk about something like dna um or even dinosaurs i mean looking at those two things if you talk about them you don't even have to spend a, 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 a more than uh, 10 seconds explaining what each of them are i mean it's in the uh, community everyone knows what they are but the issue is if you have to talk about those things in Isuzulu, then you have to spend a couple of minutes trying to explain what those things are um, in Isuzulu. And at first it was a disadvantage because it would slow me down. Uh, but then it's given me an opportunity to realize that even in English, people don't really understand what those things <laughs> are uh, exactly. Everyone thinks they know what a dinosaur is until you really look into it and it's problematic. So, uh, yes, Isuzulu doesn't have a lot of uh, modern scientific terms to um, to dis to sort of carry on a conversation about those things. But I've seen that as an opportunity to over-explain dinosaurs, over-explain DNA, over-explain the solar system, over-explain simple scientific terms that people wouldn't uh, usually admit that they don't know in in English. But if I'm speaking to them in Isuzulu and explaining why I'm coming up with a certain term for um, for a scientific term, why I'm coming up uh, with a Zulu term for it, and sort of try to explain the reasoning behind um that term, I sneakily explain the scientific term to someone whilst it seems like I'm just explaining uh, a Zulu term. So that's the sneaky part uh, <laughs> that I've found, um, which I've, I'm seeing as an advantage. Um, and um, in terms of decolonization, it's also showing... I'm also using decolonization as a way to disabuse people of the notion uh, that the history of science is full of brilliant white men. Yes, they are there, uh, but there's a lot of other people there as well. So by decentering um, that narrative uh, through speaking about science in an indigenous language, in a South African indigenous language, I also try to highlight the contributions of minorities or everyone else who isn't uh, uh, um, 
part of the narrative that we associate with who can be a scientist, who has been a scientist in the past. So yes, um, that's that's uh, that's the sneaky part <laughs> that I was trying to to explain. <laughs> so yeah, in terms of decolonization and using a, a different language, that's that's how I've been. Um, that's how I've been. That's 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 my experience with those two things uh, so far. I was struck by a tweet that you you pinned that says um, dismissing decolonization of science out of hand with the idea that science is apolitical and a perfect way to understand the universe shows an ignorance of the history of science. And I thought that that kind of pretty much sums it up. That mm-hmm. if you dismiss it and go, "There's no problem with this," then basically you perpetuate the the problems, the gaps, the inequality. Yeah, yeah. the The issue has been that um, there's there's been great movements on Twitter over the past um, since since lockdown. A lot of people are finding more time to have conferences online, so a lot more people uh, are, are are able to find each other online. There's uh, hashtag Black in Academia, hashtag uh, Black in Science, Black in Physiology, and all those other things. And uh, part of that movement has been talking about uh, decolonization. So something else that's happened, uh, I was I was quite angry on that day uh, of that tweet. I should know better not to tweet angry, but that went well <laughs> in, the, in that one time. But uh, I, it was a response to some tweets um, which were responding to uh, decolonization that if you mention the decolonization of science, some people will will reply with, uh, oh, decolonization is anti-science, decolonization, uh, oh, you're tweeting from your cell phone that uses technology on the internet, <laughs> but you want to decolonize science? Like, okay, guy, you clearly misunderstand decolonization. You need to decolonize your own mind uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense. Uh, it's, it's, it's like people who say they are not political. They clearly are, but they don't know. It's, it's I don't know how to disabuse people of those notions that they are victims of grand narratives. And um, I tweeted that and it got a lot of uh, traction. Uh, so I was very happy that a lot of people at least uh, agree on me on, on Twitter. It's not just uh, facing a lot of trolls. So, I mean, I also tweet after that that half the time spent on decolonization is explaining to uh, to some people that... Uh, Science isn't, um, or uh, more specifically, it's 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 too much effort is explaining what decolonization isn't instead of talking about what it actually is. And uh, the people holding us back are taking a lot of that energy away from from those discussions. So, yeah. Um, Can you for 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 our listeners who might be getting up to speed on this concept of decolonization? Can we have a kind of quick summary of what it is and isn't decolonization is very simply the idea and the discussions around that idea that science wasn't created in the west i know it's 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 a fact that most people know uh in in 2020 but it's still a notion that's difficult for a lot of people to unlearn uh decolonization is the idea that if you Google a scientist, it shouldn't just show uh, 
white old men in uh, in lab coats. Uh, decolonization of science is that there are many, many ideas in science, not just the uh, the scientific method itself is universal, yes, but the questions that um, are asked by an undiverse group of people uh, weakens science and decolonization of science is is the uh, very um, cliche ideas cliche sounding idea that there's di- there's strength in diversity and if there's a diversity of ideas um, then science is all for 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 the better that's that's just part of what decolonization of science is there's books and uh, uh, and courses that explain this but in the most simplest way that's how I can explain it. Thanks for thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about science centres and museums? What's their role? Because they're they're very uh, sort of a traditional environment, aren't they, for for public engagement work? Do you think they do that well? Do you think they sort of perpetuate this issue with the sort of decolonization or, or non not decolonization that sort of narrative? Do you think they bring together people who wouldn't necessarily get involved with science, or do you think they just sort of preach to the converted already? In South Africa, science centres um, have started trying to sort of do that, as well as museums. I've been uh, consulted on a new. Um, museum display that is very specific to decolonizing the history of paleontology in South Africa, specifically um, paleoanthropology in South Africa, that it wasn't just some uh, some old white guys in uh, from the UK coming to South Africa to find fossils uh, that uh, fossils and artifacts that are that are here in South Africa, that it's it's promoting the idea that they didn't do that alone. Uh, there's lots of uh, field technicians who were not recognized for their work skills that even the 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 the, the chief scientists themselves didn't have. Yeah, Lewis. So we do a lot of work in the cultural sphere now, and including museums uh, as well as working in science centres on the more recent projects. And I guess. I mean, to be honest, I think we're behind. I think museums are way further ahead in terms of the dialogue, in terms of some of the structural issues. It doesn't mean they're getting necessarily more uh, diverse audiences and, and they're getting it right all the time. Absolutely not. But in terms of the conversation, in terms of decolonizing, thinking about um, knowledge hierarchies, thinking about how the structures of paying freelancers, paying organizations, paying community groups directly to get involved, reimbursing for their time, the broader expertise. I think museums actually are generally speaking further ahead. And in fact, you know, with one of my roles is with the anti-racist educator in in Scotland, it's just been announced today, but um, I'm joining this one of the steering groups to look at slavery um, and the transatlantic trade and, and, and a consultation around that. And I think there is a bit more of an awareness around this of with by which is a big movement in um, from the states originally about these more equitable community partnerships and how to get community groups onto boards, for example. So it isn't just project based; it is structural uh, embeddedness that I think academia is just way behind. And and that's you know that's not the fault of academics; it's because of academia um, and the way as Chris was talking about it, it's you know incentivized and um, so. 
I think, generally speaking, um, museums are, are further ahead, at least in the conversation. And I think science centres are, at least in the UK, and um, it, it, I think it will be very different, but, you know, I'm on, uh, there's an equity at Excite. So Excite is a kind of a, a European um, network for science centres. Um, and they have been looking very specifically around inclusion, diversity, and slowly into decolonizing. And, you know, and, and the time is now, you know, I think Black Lives Matter and COVID has really given that a moment and it does feel a, a wee bit different from the conversations beforehand. Mm-hmm. Chris, what do you think about the, the Royal Institution? I, I mean, I, I feel like it, it is challenging the status quo in terms of, of public engagement now. And, and I know there's sort of 195 years of of history and, and not very many females. Um, you are the first ever black person to present. What, what do you think that says about the establishment? I think there's growing pains, aren't there, for these very old uh, societies like the Royal Society or Institution. I think they have this deep history and they feel that their current identity is, you know, it can't separate from its deep history, otherwise it'll become something else. But quite frankly, I think some of those places need Mm. to become something else because I think the demands of society about what they need is not, you know, this big whiz-bang thing where somebody discovers an element for the first time. (laughs) It's, It's more about, you know, the role of science across all of our lives. Now we've done some of the fundamentals and there's still fundamentals to be looked at, but how science is unknowingly in our lives and how science is already dictating how we do things and technology that's built on science is steering how we relate to each other. So I think those institutions, those 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 edifices need to recognise that their function has changed. I think one thing that's harder to tackle perhaps related to that point is where they are because I think a lot of these places are in inaccessible places for the majority of people and they are too costly. So you can have amazingly well thought out and very equitably put together exhibitions in University X, but if it's in some very bourgeois bit of central London and it costs a lot of money for people who even live in London to get there, forget somebody who lives in, in, in Derbyshire where I'm from going there and being inspired. So I think there's, you know, I think there's I think there's lots of other things that they need to do in addition to changing their kind of modus operandi, the way they conduct themselves. It's also almost physically removing themselves from where they have been historically. That's hard and it's actually impossible (laughs) and maybe they don't need to do it. But I think what those institutions could do is provide more things that are online and take their science and the importance of science into schools in these more remote or physically, you know, geographically more distanced areas. So I think that's a couple of the issues that we're we're facing. And I I think they're aware of it, but there's a tension there between the, the progressives in those societies and those institutions and the kind of, how do we describe them politely? The people with more romantic ideals of the past. Um, very that, very polite that, way of saying work? it. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> nodding, so we know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Is, does, this, does this bring us back, though, to the idea of who... Who thinks science is for them? Who does science belong to? Who will inevitably just be a consumer of an end product rather than a producer of scientific knowledge? Right. Well, that that is the million-dollar question. Um, And I think it's everything we've been talking about here, which is why it's so hard. You know, like, we are talking about systemic change 
And in in multiple systems, by the way, it's not like we can even say we only need to fix academia, which is <laughs> no small thing. Um, we need to fix academia. We need to fix these these public serving institutions who, as Chris just said, you know, have have these um, very problematic histories that still influence their present and in every way. Um, so yeah, we have systemic change that we need. We also just have these um, uh, foundational skills, by the way, that a lot of people working in science communication, again, regardless of the way that they're doing that science communication, lack. Um, so there's all kinds of training that is offered for science communication all over the place these days. I mean, I certainly I'm more familiar with the U.S., but science communication training is ever more common in the U.S. Um, and it's in some there are some groups like Metcalf Institute that that do this regularly, and um, and many others. And then there are other groups that just you know are like, hey, it's time we we're at you know, University X, and we need some science communication training, so we're going to do a little one-off program. And that's wonderful. The The challenge is that um, until and unless these competencies and skills um, and a kind of um, broader perspectives that inform inclusive and equitable communication— until those things are ta- are taught as part of these trainings, how are more people going to learn them? So we have this um, this real uh, like bottleneck in in terms of broadening the the number of people who can do this well. Yeah, I was going to sorry, just I was going to say, Sunshine. There's one really important point there is you know often those science communication courses talk about font sizes, right? Absolutely, and. <laughs> and, they're, and they're not talking about, oh, what you might want to consider is the portrayal of different racial and ethnic groups on your slide set. And that's kind of just as important as font sizes, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It, it, yeah. And so, so, great, science communication is perceived in some very simplistic ways sometimes. Not that, you know, not that like easy to read fonts that are, um, that, People with color blindness can actually see is not important. You know there are accessibility mm. concerns here too, um, but right, science communication should be much more. You can tell I'm passionate about this because my voice just squeaked. Science <laughs> communication should be much more than just um, an issue of presentation. Yeah, you know, like let's think deeply about what it is we are trying to achieve. <laughs> And the ways we are trying to engage, um, and so you know that's that's something I'm really excited about right now. Trying to figure out how to build out those um, those training modules, you know, and and approaches, um, so that many more people can implement them. I was just going to build on that. I think there's a real evidence gap there, um, and not that the research isn't there; it is. But you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the work of people like Emily Dawson, the science capital research, the Aspires research, you know, I think science communication, building what Sunshine and Chris have just said, we've gone on a model where it's, let's just make science fun, right? The the hand wavy jazz hands. Uh, And that's not to say that there's not a place for that because, you know, within the arts, there's community arts, there's arts education, and there's 
entertainment. And it's really important that science and culture has that element. But we know that it's not... It's girls don't do um, f- go into physics not because they don't find it fun. It's not because they don't do it well. It's because they don't identify and they don't see themselves reflected back, and it doesn't resound to their values and their parents' values. And so I think there's a knowledge gap there in terms of the evidence of what we think science communication should be. Of course, it should be engaging, but we know that what changes people's minds, especially around things like COVID, and it's not about facts. It is about authenticity. It's about relationship building. And so again, there's a, there's another knowledge. Up there, and a quick final point to raise what Chris said in terms of, like, for example, museums have researched whether or not uh, going for free for a free admission. There's research out in the states. Uh, increases diversity and it actually doesn't interestingly it doesn't make a difference so really it's not the financial cost it is this sense of is this a place for me and is this a place that is that values me and is worth my time Uh, and and that's a much more difficult thing than just admission prices you just reminded me of my big quarrel with the royal institution about the dress code last year (laughs) 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 which went very public and I thought I was going to get in lots of trouble and eventually they pulled the dress code for exactly the reason you point out is because wow. I was going into the, that space as somebody who's qualified, quote unquote, as an invited speaker. And I was like, I don't want to dress up in a lounge suit to talk about <laughs> volcanoes. I want to go in jeans and T-shirts. <laughs> and, and there was a huge argument about that, Lewis, for exactly those reasons. was like, I was saying people won't want to come to the Royal Institution because they don't feel like they want to enter it. And I'm saying that as the person who doesn't want to enter it because of what it's, what it's like laid out. Like, so I completely agree with you that making it fun will make it more accessible, but just like changing the feel of the places and the people in it will make more people want to come yeah. to it. And sort of dismissing this idea that because you're making it fun, you must be dumbing it down somehow. Because it's fun now and it's accessible, therefore you must be dumbing it down, right? It's so annoying. Especially if you're doing it in a jeans and T-shirt. I mean, come on. My mantra is you should wear to present your science what you wore when you did the science. <laughs> that's good. Nice. I love that. It's nice. That's a, that's a ball gown for Danielle. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> Haven't you seen my Royal Institution Christmas lectures? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do we move this forward then? You know, what what's next for us? Because we don't want this just to be a conversation and then we don't do anything. You know, how how do we move it forward? Huh, that's that's a tough one. Um it's 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 we have to move it forward because for me what I've noticed is that with a lot of the decolonization stuff that I've been talking about specifically with uh language is that a lot of people have been excited uh, about translating or talking about science in Isuzulu aren't Zulu speakers. Um, it's other science communicators, it's other podcasters or other people who are very excited about this sort of work. And I'm still myself trying to figure out, um, okay, it's great talking about it, but how do I get it to the people who need it the most? Because unfortunately, it's 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 difficult to even get uh, someone who's outside um, the field of science to care about it sometimes unless it's something super excited or colorful or jazz hands uh, like it was mentioned before <laughs> and I, I enjoy doing that sometimes but I, I want to I want to see results uh, like Lewis was saying it's important to be very specific about the work to um, 
there has to be a reason for it. There has to be um, a, a, a good way of doing it. So uh, I'm willing to hear what everyone else has to say um, because um, I'll, I'd, I'd also like to. I'd also like to know. Sunshine, how how do you move the conversation forward in the U.S.? So I really appreciate what Sibasisa just just said, um, and you know I'm thinking of the nothing about us without us, um, you know, uh, rallying cry, and and I think that's a really important point. But um, another thing that I would add that is very important for moving forward that kind of builds on that idea is that there are. Um, Many early career scientists and science communicators who are bringing novel and very exciting approaches toward this work. And they're really leading the pack in many ways. And they need to be in these conversations in leadership positions to a much greater degree. Um, They're, you know, and with the power to actually influence the conversations, but not as tokens, you know. Um, And I think this is a really important thing that all of us, you know, in whatever spheres we work in need to be thinking about. So that's one of many thoughts I have in response to that question. Yeah. Novel and exciting. I mean, Lewis, science Cayley is novel and I love a Cayley. That's very exciting. Is that the way you're going to move it forward? Um, not, well, not, at least not in terms of the dance aspect, even though that's always the fun bit, <laughs> but sadly we're not going to be dancing for a, for a wee while. Um, but mm. I mean, the original meaning of Kaylee is a gathering, you know, it, it doesn't in Gaelic, it means, uh, bringing people together. And I think that really is my main advice, um, especially working across different sectors. I think, I think we need to, the main thing I think to move forward is that we need to be humble. We need to listen. Um, and I think COVID has really centered to a point, you know, I believe that science and public engagement can be a big part of social justice and making the world better. But the time has to be right. The format has to be right. And I think we do need to ask ourselves these questions and learn from other sectors. You know, look at how arts and culture and third sector have dealt with this humanitarian crisis that is on our hands at the moment. And they've been flexible the way that they um, fund and so have intermediaries uh, that are community-based that are really truly led by communities and funding directly communities. Um, I think we need to look at within our science communication power structures and, and, and research power structures and 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 really question, is it flexible enough? And, and do we really hand over enough power um, to communities. And I think that, you know, and if the answer is no, I think that is, that needs to change and it will take time and it's difficult. Um, and I think we need to remain humble throughout the whole thing. Absolutely. Chris, I mean, you've, you've got a great opportunity coming up with your Royal Institution Christmas lectures as well. I mean, that must be a great way to, to keep this conversation flowing. It is definitely a great way, but I think the thing that kind of worries me about things like the Christmas lectures, they become the, the kind of the, 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 the summit of science communication. And, and if you're at the top of that summit, you will be listened to more and afforded more airtime than other people. And there's a huge space, isn't there, beneath, quote unquote, the science communication that's afforded by the Royal Institution Christmas lectures, all the way down to talking to your kids at the breakfast table about something they found <laughs> interested on the breakfast table. And it's that huge space between that that I think we need to... 
we need to kind of value and not just idolize, I guess, certain people who are given those particular positions and, and fetishize their achievements and then measure ourselves against this. And if you don't do science communication and you get your own TV series, then you're not as good as this person because it sucks a huge amount of energy out of the room uh, if, if that happens. So, so, and so, you know, just a final comment related to all of that is then, you know, in that middle space between those two kind of extremes, if you will, in the UK academic system, which is what I'm most familiar with, is, that, is going back to my original point at the start, is, is actually valuing it and, and getting an evidence base for the value of science communication. We're seeing that at the moment around admissions, you know, there's all these scares about whether we're going to get enough students after COVID and there's scares in earth sciences, which I work in, around our falling application numbers and student numbers. Maybe we need to go out and start telling people why things are really important. And actually, you know, the bum on a seat which pays some money is as valuable as a paper published in Nature or Science, perhaps. Mm. I'm just going to throw it out there. And so the people who are doing that, you know, what do you call it? unglamorous work of going into schools and being like shouted at by small kids like I have um, you know maybe there is some monetary value to that and I don't want to monetize it though because I just want to do it because I just want to talk to small kids about rocks right but if the people upstairs need to be convinced of it I think we need to have some evidence base and I don't and maybe it's out there and I'm just not aware of it and if it is out there we need to be presenting it much more centrally to again, the UK academic management and saying this is the value of science communication in terms of the bottom line. I, I, I always hate to do that because it perverts the incentives, right, to do it. It becomes a financial incentive rather than I think it's we just need to make science more equitable by talking to lots of different people. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess what it, what it does do is embed what might turn into systemic change rather than just being a charismatic individual or a, a funky project that's got funding because that those are the systems that are recognised within the institutions and structures that we've inherited, that, you know, we're all embedded in, me as a, a journalist, as an anthropologist, you guys as academics. So I, I wonder whether it has to be monetized. whether that's one of the things that the, um, you know, bean counters will be able to fit in their spreadsheet. Uh, the problem is, is that you, once you monetize things, as soon as the value or the perceived value is lost... It disappears. Yeah. So I'm really, really, it's the same when you talk about EDI initiatives or you talk about things like Athena Swan or, you know, Race Policy Charter. When there's money on the hook, people will behave and they won't be as terrible, or at least they'll be able to keep themselves to themselves for long enough. <laughs> but as soon as you take that, that incentive away, you know, you, 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 you know, we've got to fight for the hearts and minds and the real, and the real, and the real hunger for real change. But so I'm a bit conflicted, as you can hear. Yeah, that is a tough one. Especially in South Africa, there's been a lot of incentive given to scientists uh, in their research to include science communication as part of their um applications for funding uh but then it becomes a uh what you would call a tick box exercise they will do the bare minimum in order yeah. to get that <laughs> done but then if you don't incentivize that if you don't incentivize that they're not then they're not going to do it at all so it's 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 a tough one do you incentivize it do you not uh, if you don't they don't do it but then if you do incentivize it the the advantage is that there are scientists who do want to communicate their science um and you can see the passion come out when 
they do get that opportunity, um, an opportunity that they wouldn't get if it wasn't incentivized. So maybe it's, yes, it's, it's a lot of people are going to do a tick box thing, but maybe that incentive gives the opportunity to those who wouldn't have that opportunity otherwise, but want to, to, to do it. Oh, I feel like we could have this conversation forever. Um, but I, <laughs> I I guess we have to stop there. Subisisu, Lewis, Sunshine, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your experience and insight with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for having us. I think it's such an important conversation isn't it and I think as a you know from my point of view as a as an academic as a researcher as a teacher everyone is affected by by the progress of science so so we need an inclusive community that that engages all the voices in the scientific dialogue and and um and it, it just needs to happen you know we need more people like you guys and and more of this needs to happen yeah that's it and and that is the way that SciComm, in my mind, achieves its ultimate aim, which is making science belong to and benefit everyone. And I think the other thing, Danielle, is that this can't be a moment that happened in 2020 where we all suddenly, well, some of us were already awake, but, you know, the rest of us kind of woke up and went, oh, here's here's a thing that's happening. What are they all about? You know, we have to actually use this as a moment to change things systemically and permanently. Um, So with that in mind, what we're going to do, good listeners of our podcast, is this is a special, but this is just the start. So please do go on to the website, thisstudyshows.com, to find links and information to our speakers, to the examples that we've talked about, to best practice that they think that more people should know about so that we can start building those relationships. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Um, And thank you to an amazing panel. See you soon. Bye. Bye.